By the time the shortest month of the year is up, a man with one of the longest track records in Sacramento government is walking out of the Capitol building, retiring, and taking a giga knowledge of institutional memory with him. Daniel Zingale, a top advisor to the last three governors and to Maria Shriver, and a veteran of the Jerry Brown 1.0 administration, was called back for another tour of duty in late 2018 by the newly elected Gavin Newsom. Zingale had gotten Newsom's attention with an essay on Cal Matters, a list of disruptive suggestions for the new governor to pursue, some of them hefty policies and some more lighthearted, like a real ID California passport for this golden nation state. The Sacramento-born Zingale has also been founding director of California's managed health care department, executive director of AIDS Action, and a top official at the California Endowment. As an eight-year-old schoolboy more than 50 years ago, he went with his mother to a UFW rally on the Capitol grounds, and the sights and sounds of democracy in action stirred him for the first, but clearly not for the last time. How different is California now from the one where you started working on government and policy issues? The first thing that would strike someone as having changed, if you compared back then to now, is the texture of who's here in the Capitol. When I was first exposed to this building, which was actually back in the 1960s when I was a kid, it was pretty much one demographic of people who ran the place. They were tended to be middle-aged to older white men, of course, all of them heterosexual at that time, publicly. And now you go in the halls of the Capitol, it looks a great deal like California. And not just sort of the diversity, but the democracy actually seems to be thriving more in the halls of the Capitol than what I remember from the earlier days. Every day, there are hundreds of people here expressing their opinions from all perspectives, just lined up outside the legislative hearings and outside the governor's office. When you were a kid, California was about building more and bringing more people. And now it seems like we may have hit the wall in some ways with too much of a good thing. Our problems are enough housing and finding how to take care of the homeless and the income gap that seems to be getting only wider. The early California in my life that I remember, it was just all about growing and expanding. And that was just 100% good in everyone's eyes at that time. And in retrospect, we could have done a better job of managing some of that growth and planning for it. It has served us well that so many people sought to to live in California, come to California. It still serves us well that it's a destination for the best and brightest, the dreamers from all over the country and world. But I think everyone would agree now we could have done a better job of planning for being a state of 40 million, which is just mind-boggling. And now we need to make some course correction in terms of making sure that we have affordable housing for all the people who are here and will still come here. Why didn't we see it coming? It does seem to me that it's in the DNA of politics to be somewhat short-sighted. I'm sorry to say the way we choose our leaders, they come and go. It's hard to ask a leader to look 10, 20 years down the line when they know someone else will be sitting in that seat, whether it's the legislative seat or the governor's seat. But again, I hope that lesson has been learned. And now I think there's a new generation of leaders emerging in this state who have a greater appreciation for the importance of working long-term. You, about 20 years ago, became the first head of the Department of Managed Care, the first HMO czar in the nation. It was an exciting time in California because, frankly, the people of California had had enough in terms of how the HMOs were 
charging them and then denying them care when they were most in need. So it was really kind of a popular uprising against what was happening in the HMO system, which frankly I think is where most good policy, transformative policy comes from, is from the people rather than originating with the politicians. So that kind of people's HMO revolt resulted in the creation of that new department. That department had and has extraordinary powers to protect patients and connect them with care, prevent HMOs from denying medical treatment when it's needed to people who have paid for their coverage. I think if I had to tell you the thing I'm most proud of, it may be having had some involvement in getting California closer to universal health coverage. We've known for some time that we paid a terrible price for excluding so many people from access to health coverage. By now, I think most people know they end up oftentimes in the emergency room with some of the least efficient, highest cost care later than medical intervention should have happened, not just for their health and well-being, but for the health and well-being of the system and the cost of the system. So we're doing a better job now of early intervention, preventive care, which is lower cost than at the other end of the healthcare continuum. We hear about how California is hostile to business. I think that's mostly overblown, to be honest with you, especially when it comes to big business. This is still a very attractive place to do business. I do think we've made it too difficult for small businesses in this state and other parts of the country, not only to get started, but then to sustain a small business. We have erred in sometimes treating small mom-and-pop startup business as if they were a giant corporation who could afford lawyers and accountants and all the things you sometimes need to navigate important regulations. They're there to protect people's health, safety, workers' rights. But I think increasingly there's an awareness among the elected officials I've worked with that we have to treat small businesses differently and better than we have in the past. You hear the phrase nanny state, that we're the people who ban plastic bags. We're the people who think like New York. Soda cups are too big. I think it can go too far. I definitely think there are examples where just as a resident of California, I feel like those kinds of things get too intrusive and the benefit is so minimal that it's not worth the intrusion. But on the other hand, we never want to look lose sight of the fact that the reason the lifespan in this state and nation have increased dramatically just in the last couple of generations is not primarily about the medical intervention. Primarily, our lifespan has been extended because of regulations that require safer water, safer working conditions for people in factories and fields. It's all those things that we like to complain about as government intrusion that have actually made our quality of life and our literally our the length of our lifespan increase because we have greater protection. And if we slack off on that, as we're seeing in Washington, D.C. now, on clean air, clean water, we will pay a terrible price. A great positive example, in my experience, is the way California has approached tobacco. I know industry and others felt we were going too far under previous governors when we imposed ways of making cigarettes cost more, prohibiting their use in certain public spaces with the danger of secondhand smoke. But the truth is, what those things ended up doing was putting California in the lead in the nation in terms of reducing smoking and thereby reducing lung cancer and other health consequences related to smoking. But it's fairly right to argue that those things had way more benefit than they did intrusive consequences for our state. Sometimes being 30 feet from stardom or across the table from political stardom, knowing what you know, and then yet seeing the man, in every case, that you've been advising go a different way. How frustrating is that? For me, it's about that person 
being elected by seven or eight million people to be governor of California. I've seen enough up close of governors to see that it is a very tough seat to sit in and have the responsibility to make decisions trusted in you by all of those people. So for someone like me, the, the role is to give our best advice, best research and data, but I'm very comfortable and knowing that someone else has signed up for that most difficult task of making the ultimate decision. I would think one of the biggest changes in your lifetime since you were a schoolboy in California was Proposition 13. Before you went to a school system that was ranked number one in the nation, the dream was that higher education would be free for Californians at at state schools. And then came Prop 13. Do you think that Prop 13 is a help to Californians? Is it a structural handicap? Does it need amending? I'm glad you brought it up. I think Prop 13 is one of the monumental markers in the history of California state government. And a fascinating story, the politics of it and how the policy has played out. There's no question that it has been a benefit to homeowners, many of whom were struggling at the time of its passage. My parents ended up living in the home that they lived in then when Prop 13 was passed for 65 years, all told. And it was a lifesaver for them to have their property taxes controlled like that. So there's no question it had a benefit. And it's sort of a cautionary tale what happens when the politics ignores struggling middle-class people when it comes to something as central to having a roof over their heads. So I think that's why it passed. That's what was good about it. Unfortunately, it went too far, I think, in extending some of those benefits to the private sector companies that were less in need of that relief, especially over time, have been able to capitalize on it in ways that have not been good for the schools, because, of course, that money came out of the schools. It is not a coincidence that after Prop 13 was passed and our public schools and funding levels started dropping, putting us down towards the lower end of the list of states in terms of our per capita funding, that our schools have fallen in quality. We have to figure out how to, in the long term, sustain our schools at a level of excellence, but obviously without doing any damage to what was good about protecting homeowners uh, with regards to Prop 13. It seems like now California has maybe five priority one, (laughs) all jostling for the number one spot, whether it's energy and climate change, whether it's housing infrastructure and water, income gap, homelessness, everything wants to be first. And what does government do then in those circumstances, whether it's the governor's office or the legislature? Well, everybody knows conventional political wisdom is choose one thing and be known for it. That's kind of the political formula for political success. This governor has been clear that these are times that require a fierce urgency of now, that you cannot tell the senior citizen who's can't afford prescription drugs that are life-saving, now's not the time to fight big pharma over drug pricing. You cannot look a young person in the eyes and say, now is not the time to fight climate change. You certainly can't tell people living in the fire zone, now's not the time to prioritize fire prevention and resiliency. At the same time, there have to be priorities. And I think what you're seeing coming out of the Capitol now makes sense to me. Number one, again, the energy crisis as it relates to the wildfires has to be priority number one just for the basic competence of government. We have to show that we can deal with that in a responsive and responsible way. The second, you also mentioned the housing and homelessness emergency 
has to be treated as an emergency, which it is. We're seeing this governor. I think we're going to see this legislature step up to that in a way that is unprecedented and recognizes the emergency nature of that. And then the third I would mention is this crisis of affordability, which is now afflicting most Californians, where it's becoming impossible to afford housing and college and childcare and all the things that are adding up to putting the California dream out of reach for millions of people. And so that, at the root of that, of course, is income inequality. So we have to address that head on in ways that won't make everybody happy. But I think if we take on those three priorities in a bold and decisive way, we'll keep California on the right track. As you leave, you look at California trying to stand up to the federal government in the embodiment of this man, President Trump. How do you size up that battle? What I think is new and terribly troubling now is to have a federal administration that is just overtly hostile to California and the 40 million people who reside here in the form of punitive actions repeatedly aimed at California to undermine the good things that are happening here. And I'm still hopeful we can move beyond that, somehow rise above that. But that just feels wrong at a very deep level to have a president seems to have it out for the state, uh, 40 million people. Are you at all worried about a Democratic supermajority in Sacramento that can pretty much do what it wants and may do things that are not in the long-term best interest of the state, but in their own interest? No, I have not spent time worrying about that. I do caution anyone in power that you have to be very careful not to lose sight of the fact that you are accountable to all Californians in this case. I was involved in this work at a time when the Democrats controlled Congress and forgot that they had to be accountable in ways that would later come to haunt them. And so, um, you know, it's always important, whether it's Republicans, Democrats, legislators, or executives, to just check yourself and remember who you work for. Every day, we work behind these big double doors of the governor's office. But when anybody tells me there's a group of people out there for whatever issue have come to be heard, to protest, to say they're angry with us, I do my best to get out there and just hear what they have to say. If somebody goes to the trouble traveling to Sacramento from this big state, take time out of their busy lives, their work schedule, their family obligations, the least we can do is give them a good listen and respect the fact that they're really in charge here. I still get moved every time I walk into the Capitol Dome building because I believe it's a monument to democracy, to, to the people being in charge. That is an exception in terms of human history. It's still something people uh, long for, die for in other parts of the world. So I think if you keep that in mind, whether you have a majority, a supermajority, or you're in power or not, you'll do a better job and you'll be more likely to succeed. What makes a successful governor? Is it the times? Is it the individual temper? What are the components that go into that? The times have a lot to do with it. I had the honor of working for Gray Davis, who was very skilled, intelligent, earnest, public servant who took that job to heart every day, but was governing in very difficult times. And I think now in retrospect, we understand some of the early burgeoning of this populist movement that just was angry at the world and was going to take it out on whomever they could. So despite all his best efforts and significant accomplishments, and at some points in time, high standing in terms of the polls and regard people of California, his tenure, of course, ended in a recall. I've seen them all have highs and lows and successes and setbacks. I think the most important thing is to stay humble, 
be in awe of the privilege of being here. Expect that there will be tough times, that the times will throw you things that you rather they didn't, that you didn't anticipate, and then just do your best. Before Gavin Newsom took office, you wrote an open letter to him with some sometimes whimsical ideas and suggestions about what to do for California. Can you run through a few of those? Life is filled with surprises because that was a piece I wrote purely from the conviction that I was done working for governors. In my experience, governors, newly elected governors, are not looking for someone who will go out and give them public advice in a somewhat cavalier, even flippant at times, way. And the irony was that Gavin Newsom saw that piece and really liked the creative approach and didn't bristle at all at having somebody put those things out there. And that's really a big part of how we came to work together. There were ideas that I hoped the new governor might enact some of them over four years. He enacted most of them in the first year. He created the Office of the Surgeon General. He started plans to close the prison. He got a university for Stockton, California underway and in the planning process. Youth prison reform was on my list, and he is moving the youth correction system out of the adult prison and into health and human services, which is a radically transformative new approach. I talked about breaking barriers in terms of appointment of trans Californians. He's done that. And then he's gone beyond that. Medi-Cal expansion was on my list to make Medi-Cal available to more Californians. Newsom has created subsidies for Californians who are here with immigration papers, but just are not able to afford that health care. So. And the whimsical ones. Well, least whimsical was I asked him to abolish the death penalty and put a moratorium on that, which, um, again, I'm deeply grateful for. Some of the whimsical ones he did, he did have a taco truck on the steps of the Capitol, which was a highlight for me. He did decorate the governor's mansion for Halloween, which was cool. And the one that struck me was a Statue of Liberty West welcoming immigrants. I meant that in seriousness, that the Statue of Liberty, I think, represents all that is best about this nation in terms of our values and welcoming the people who have made this country thrive in the great country that we are. And that is truer for California than any place. Daniel Zingali, thank you for your time. Pat, thank you so much for having me. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. Be sure to subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and you will never miss a podcast.